Welcome to Beyond the Labyrinth, one of several places where I, Hannah Gracia, and my co-beagler, Alfred Reeves Visson, engage in the labyrinthine pursuit of questions of meaning. See what else we're up to, or subscribe to our podcast, at Dedalia.net. Today, we're going to nose around in a loosely gathered suite of ideas associated with William Morris's The Wood Beyond the World. But first, some background. Yes. Okay, a short introduction to Morris. So I think a good way maybe to understand a little bit about him is to look at a track that he wrote in 1894, uh, just, just a few years before he died, for the Socialist Democratic Federation journal Justice. It's a piece called How I Became a Socialist. And while the article mostly concerns social causes, surprisingly enough, um, at one point he makes a remarkable statement that, that I think captures the essence of, of why we're interested in this brilliant Victorian. Listen to what he says. Apart from the desire to produce beautiful things, the leading passion of my life has been and is hatred of modern civilization. Wow, that is quite a statement especially from someone living in the 19th century, a time that we, I think, automatically associate with advancement and progress. Hatred of modern civilization. Now, I think few people have heard of Morris today, but if you read around in the 19th century in poetry, essays, fantasy, or the, or the various writings of the arts and crafts movement, he's a towering figure, and he, he remains fascinating. The two impulses in this statement, the desire to produce beautiful things, and the hatred of modern civilization, I think they reflect his varied interests. He was a leading figure in the British arts and crafts movement, not only designing furniture and textiles, but using and teaching traditional craftsmanship in his own manufacturing company. His company and his intellectual pursuits really constituted a revolt against the growing use of mass production and and really against the whole of, of modern civilization. There are driving force in his writing, for instance, in the deliberate medievalism of his novels, through which he became the first recognized fantasy author in the English canon, and in his social criticism, where he advocated for common people and for a socialist revision of modern life. We live in a time when I think the verities of modern life seem less and less reliable, a time when our shared assumptions about how society works seem one by one to be proven wrong. So when we consider the fact that many of the bedrock ideologies of our time, things like mass production, global free market capitalism, and consumerism, to name a few, when we think about the fact that these date from the 19th century, I don't think it's surprising to find our doubts and discomforts foretold to us by Morris. I think his unease mirrors our own. So, the wood beyond the world was actually a work of fantasy done in a kind of medieval romance style. Um, What the heck was Morris doing in the mid to late 19th century, late 19th century, right, Alfred? I think so. 1896. Yeah, there we go. What what was he doing writing fantasy, especially in a medieval romantic style at that point in time? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by that question. I didn't actually know anything about Morris other than vaguely that he made tapestries and was sort of vaguely associated in my head with the arts and crafts movement um, until I started reading The Annotated Hobbit of all things. And in the introduction, which is the history of the text, one of the notes is about the influences on Tolkien. And 
it, it talks about how when Tolkien was a young person, he devoured the, the, the novels of Morris. And I didn't even know at that point Morris had written novels. But as soon as I read that, the penny dropped. Like, well, of course. I mean, Tolkien went on to be the greatest fantasy author ever. And he was a young man at the turn of the 20th century. If Morris was writing novels that what we today call fantasy, you know, he would he would have been reading them. And and so um, it's a fascinating question. And I, what, I guess where, they what sold it, well during his lifetime, didn't they? I actually don't know. Okay. We should know, we don't this. know that. Yeah, that's okay. Um, but it seems to me that it's it's a hugely important question because it's not just it's not just a sort of vague academic interest. Um, I think it's it 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 makes Morris connect to us today um, because I think it seems to me from what he was up to he was pretty profoundly dissatisfied with with what was happening in his time, the industrialization, mass production, and he was revolting against it. And so- And then there's that Victorian moral code that he could have revolted against as well, but I guess more on that later. Yeah, he doesn't seem to really, um, which is fascinating. (laughs) So, but, but when you think about it, so there's sort of two elements he's revolting or maybe escaping from. So he's, no, he's revolting and escaping through fantasy itself through the idea of creating a fantasy world because we all know that the world of the would be on the world does not work like our world our world works but he's also revolting by going back to the medieval romance style and we see that in the language um and in a lot of other ways too but there's sort of two forms of revolt going on in this work yeah i mean it appears that he uh, you know took that medieval form pretty seriously i mean for what little i've dug into it when he was a student at oxford he got very interested in lamort d'arthur and some of that stuff and he was consciously trying to recreate that and he studied the icelandic sagas and he you know he he had uh i can't remember if he did translations himself or had them done but he was very he was you know he was interested in all that and was trying to, to model on it. But I would actually say there's three forms of revolt. There's there's the going back to medievalism, there's the fantasy piece, which is a the, the medievalism is the way he did the fantasy piece. And then there's the, his sort of mainstream career where he was um, sort of anti-manufacturing. He was trying to, you know, he part of how he got famous was creating medieval tapestries that the new Victorian consumer culture was snapping up. I mean, his work was in huge demand. And that's another irony of all this, right? Is he actually became a part of the consumer thing because people wanted his stuff and he didn't want to mass produce. You know, he, he wanted artisans who knew how to make things traditionally to do their thing. And, and he, that's how he tried to approach it. And then he himself became in demand. But of course, we don't see that really in the would be on no, the world. No, I'm beagling. I'm beagling. That's for sure. But, I, but, for I, sure. but it seems to me it's all of a piece, right? This is sure. Um, I mean, we're all Lord knows we're all full of um, contradictions. But it seems to me uh, Morris is consistent in this, that his his approach to his his sort of craft work and then his approach to writing seem to be coming flowing from the same place. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, I think it's hard for us today to read something like one of his romances 
without thinking of Monty Python. Um, you know, I mean, because our today, whatever year this is, 2020, I mean, if anybody knows about King Arthur, for instance, it's probably filtered through the Holy Grail, the, the 19 early 70s film, which is which is almost a word for word translation of Lamorne Darthur. <laughs> I may add. I mean, seriously, scenes lifted directly out of it. So right. they didn't have to work which, that hard. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> they did not have to work that hard. That's exactly right. But um, I guess I'm sort of curious to think about what what he, what is he taking from Lamort Darthur exactly? I mean, you, you say people are reminded of that, but uh, this the the Woodby on the World is a very structured story. It's strange, but structured. Strange. And Lamort yes. Darthur is a very wandering, mm, yes. um, wayfaring piece of narrative. But it strikes me that what is similar i mean i remember as a young person watching that film i haven't watched it in a few years but i remember being utterly perplexed by the ending i think as many people are you know you sort of have this story with knights running around and having all these adventures and then suddenly at the end of the film they get arrested for having a battle you know the police show up and it's like what you know what is this and and when you start to think about it it's like oh what they're playing with here is the clash of medieval and modern culture and that and that things that were perfectly okay to the medieval mindset or at least a certain romantic chivalric understanding of the medieval mindset um were are not okay for us random violence for instance perpetrated on people who just happen to be in the way um yeah you know and i think that's what they're playing with in the film um which is actually quite brilliant um yes and so when when i read the wood beyond the world and i and i've uh read most of the the sequel to it, um, the the well at the world's end. Um, it strikes me as part of the reason it's so bizarre is because they just sort of the, the the hero almost literally wanders around and has all these random adventures, and there doesn't seem to be any, and, and yet it, it seems almost pointless, and yet it's endowed with a sense of purpose, like you know, yes, yeah, so it makes it makes you might, roll your eyes yes indeed indeed it does i mean we might actually look at that sort of it's it seems endowed with a sense of purpose so his wife cheats on him too bad he decides to go on a sea on a sea voyage good solution seems reasonable right sees some magical people really odd decides to chase after him is oddly able to do this why does yes. this happen? I don't understand. I'm sure if I go on a sea voyage, I'm not going to be able to chase after fantasy people, but he succeeds. The ship yes. gets whatever. What what happens? He gets, uh, he has to go to that the mm. island. Oh, they get, they get blown off course by a storm. Yes, there's a storm. Right. Yeah. And so they end up in this place they weren't expecting to be. And lo and behold, the bear people live there. And lo and behold, beyond the bear people is wood beyond the world. And he knows that he must go there to find these people. Yeah, and it and it turns out that it really was a lure. He was lured there. Yes, he was lured there by the um, by the lady. The lady yes, who is a sorceress one. of some kind. Would you say? Yes, I think so. Yeah, and then she has the maid who's a slave, and then there's the dwarf who is, of course, ugly and sort of a caricature. Not at all like Tolkien's dwarves. No, not at all like Tolkien's dwarves um who who were modeled on the uh, or at least the names came from the icelandic sagas i don't know about the the way he characterizes them but 
Yes. Those Icelandic sagas may be somewhere we're going to have to go in this podcast eventually. Yes. Yeah, I think so. I think there's a new translation out even. All right. <laughs> so, um, I mean, he does the fantasy thing. What's what's he doing? I mean, we, we're we're saying he's rebelling, and we're saying this is this is his sort of verbalization of that rebellion. W- what do we see in it? I mean, yeah, and, that, and that's mean, where I find it somewhat dissatisfying. Like I I find the project itself fascinating that he took it up. That clearly it was very important to him. I mean, you know, this is a guy that could basically do whatever he wanted to do, and he'd become very successful and. Um, you know, and, and it's very admirable, I think, in that he, ch- he he chose very deliberately what to do with his time, clearly, and he didn't just, you know, he was driven, and, you know, he did, he did all this amazing work with his hands and then with his mind, right, and so this was a very deliberate, I think, decision on his part, and he wrote, I think, four fantasy novels, I mean, he, he wrote all kinds of stuff, and he, I was gonna say, he, his, his canon is huge, yeah, it's enormous, yeah, so he's so, a very busy man. Very busy man, very driven. This for him, there was a so I think part of it must be in the language. You know, I think he because I mean one of the irritating things about a lot of fantasy is is the 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 world creation is sloppy. Um like that's oh, one of the reasons okay. that I while I admire and respect the achievement of the Harry Potter books. Um, I find the world creation sloppy. I mean, it's just sloppy. It's full of anachronisms and bizarre inconsistencies, and um, which I know is heresy to all the Harry Potter fans out there. But um, as, as good as as well constructed as those stories are, the, the world create they're not really fantasies. They're they're really good YA. They're not really fantasies though. More Our audience a- will note that Alfred here is a fan of fantasy. <laughs> fantasy. Yes. This is this is. <laughs> This is something our audience will note. Yes. Um, and Morris did it well, did he? Well, well, what I'm, well, where I'm trying to go with this is I think the language is a, is a part of the world creation for him. In other words, he's taking huge pains to write the story in a way that it is a medieval romance. That Clearly, that's part of what he's after. And I almost wonder if the story itself and the plot is, is almost secondary to that drive to create a medieval romance. Like... In, okay. in total, uh, in other well, words, well, like to offer that up as an alternative to what he saw going on around him. But is it simple world creation, or is it also yeah. rebellion against the language of the Victorian? Well, that's what I'm wondering, right? Because it certainly yeah. was much more technical than the language a hundred years before, or two hundred years before, for sure. And yeah. and if you're going to go all the way back to the medieval period, yeah, big time, yeah. So I mean, I you know, he's all. T- I mean, what does fantasy do? It offer it offers up an alternative, and it strikes me an alternative reality, and it strikes me that. Part of what Morris is doing is saying, look, not only is our world, you know, going wrong, the way we talk about it has gone wrong. Um, maybe. I mean, I, I I don't know that surely in his day-to-day discourse, he didn't he didn't uh, try to speak the way. <laughs> the way surely not. But but that this so 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 I I'll say point taken, yes, but but I'll also say I'm not satisfied. <laughs> with this world he creates because for instance oh, i mean slavery is clearly acceptable and and i keep thinking how can this be i mean when you think of the type of person he was when you think about his working with his hands and everything that's really a kind of agency you know that that is fundamental yes. <clears throat> to his um per- perception of the world and his um his ideal worldview i guess 
slavery is acceptable. Unfortunate for the slave, of course, but acceptable. Yeah, well, I mean, he was Never yeah, absolutely. He was a socialist. I mean, he was a. I mean, you know, how again, does a start... socialist write some write yeah. a story where slavery is acceptable, especially a fantasy? Yeah, I, well, again, that to me, that's that's part of it's. It seems like that's where he's, and, some, and I guess in some ways trapped himself in this medieval form. Ah, perhaps. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know, but it seems yes. to me he he's he's deliberately writing a medieval romance, which means it's more than just the language; it's the mores of late medieval Christian culture, because it does appear to be Christian. Um, weirdly so, yes. Yes, weirdly so. Um, Very and, much weirdly so. And in the in the next novel, the the well at the world's end, there's more of that. There's churches and bishops, and which. I, I don't know what to make of that, but well, so so I can accept what you just said, but it's really not satisfactory because I, I mean, if you look at Lamorte d'Arthur, for instance, which is your sort of classic medieval romance in English, anyway, you you there's not slavery's not a big theme, but it's absolutely mm. central to this story. I mean, he it is still a decision he makes. He doesn't have yeah. to. There's other things he could do. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Well, I want, so I wonder if that's colored by his being a 19th century Victorian and, mm. you know, slavery being, I mean, even though, you know, the slave trade was, you know, made illegal in the early 19th century and it ended in this country in the 1860s, it was still going on all the way through the century in different parts of the world. I mean, mm -hmm. for sure. And, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the British essentially, while the slave trade was outlawed, the indentured servant you know what they did with you know people from india and south africa mm -hmm. and places like that um uh you know was was still rampant and i would assume he would have known all about that yeah yeah absolutely i mean it it, it was a fact of life so maybe that's maybe that's a timely element i don't know but it is a bizarre <clears throat> yeah i mean i guess one of the questions here is I mean, Tolkien's famous for saying that he despised allegory and he got really upset when people would read like the Lord of the Rings and try to interpret it as a story of the struggle of World War II or something. He's like, no, it's not an allegory about World War II. It, it, okay. Um, and I'm, you know, and if you look at what Morris is doing, I don't think it's an allegory either. You know, I don't think there doesn't seem to be a moral message. There's just the story. And, and in other words, I don't know that he's trying to, maybe he is, but I don't see, he's not trying to give us a set of values. He's just describing this story and, 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 and the, the, the protagonist is not particular, you know, that you have a certain amount of sympathy with him, but there's also parts of it that, you know, he's not a model. I'm not sure he's not a model. I yeah. think he makes him out to be quite a, quite a good guy. He talks hmm. in various places about him being, graceful and behaving just as much in this direction or that direction as you should. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure he's not a model. Plus you did say that the story seems to be imbued with meaning. Question is what on earth does it mean well, if it's yes. imbued with meaning? Maybe we should move on to looking at magic and maybe as well, the role of magic, uh, the relationship between magic and gender, which I think is just a very, very interesting thread here. Yeah, because uh, the maiden has magic or what she calls wisdom. And I think equating those two is an interesting thing, um, as mm -hmm. does the lady who is clearly the bad guy. Um, <laughs> and 
somehow or other, the maiden's magic threatens the lady and her magic. But what's even more interesting than that is, of course, that the maiden's magic is tied to her maidenhead. And so she only has it and the power that it brings her as long as she is a virgin. Right. And of course, the, the second Walter enters the story, her virginity um, has a timeline. Yes. <laughs> and an yeah, end point. Ticking bomb. Yes. yes, indeed. So, I mean, what I, maybe we can start with this equation of magic with wisdom, because I know that's done in fantasy a lot. Yes. So, so what the heck? Well, I mean, I think that goes all the way back to the Greeks. Um, this idea of gnosis, hidden knowledge, um, the Gnostic writings and the Gnostic gospels and the, you know, the idea that there is, as it, it was, I think esoteric religion is what it was, I think it's called now is this idea that there is, there is a secret knowledge about the universe that only some people have. Um, and, and the Gnostics thought they had it, the, you know, a lot of the Neoplatonists, um, you know, Augustine was famous for his, um, being a Manichaean before he became a Christian and, and they had, would have these secret meetings where only, you know, the, the initiates were the only ones that really had the true knowledge and, and, and part of what leaves, you know, poor, obnoxious, brilliant Augustine flat-footed as he finally gets in the inner circle and meets the, the head Manichaean and, and the guy's a moron, you know, <laughs> and, and he's sort of like, what, this is it, you know, um, <laughs> Uh, that's all in the confessions. But uh, anyway, uh, I, I think that's ultimately that's where it comes from, this idea that there, there is there's secret knowledge about the universe. And so a, a someone who, and I believe it, the etymology was probably worth looking into here. Um, the word wizard, I think, is probably etymologically tied to wisdom. It may not be, but I, I suspect it is. Well, we should look that up. That would yeah. be interesting to find out. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this idea that those who have true knowledge, therefore have a kind of power um, is, is, I think, a pretty basic idea. Um, there's also an old tradition that if you, if you know the true name of something, you have power over it. Um, that, that's a huge deal in like the Earthsea books by Ursula Le Guin. Um, but it's a very old idea going way back that, that when you have, when you know something's true name, then, then therefore you have power over it. Um, and so, so a, a wizard protects their true name. They don't share it because that would give others power. And so I think um, it's a pretty basic idea that, that um, seems to be woven in here, right? That, um, that magic and wisdom are tied together somehow. So uh, maybe it comes from the Middle English whiz, W-Y-S, which means wise, a wizard. Right, wise there you man. go, wise one, yep. Yes, yep, yep, okay. Makes sense. All right, so. And so with that, with that makes this whole thing more obnoxious from our point of view that the, that, that <laughs> the, the, the maid, uh, you know, has to lose her wisdom. I mean. <laughs> yes, yes, and, and, and. And we, maybe we can we can hit that harder in just a minute. But I, I, I have to say that we, we, we know about suspension of disbelief. And I have to say the magic part of these fantasy works really tries mine. It really does. <laughs> and, and, and may I mention your own work, Alfred? Oh, sure. <clears throat> uh, your, your, your novella called... The push of the pendulum, a push of the pendulum. Yes, yes. And people 
it's going up on, on our website, seriously, serially published. So uh, look out for the next chapter anytime here. Anyway, the first question I had for Alfred after I read it was, so can you do magic? Because if you can't, what sense does this make? <laughs> well, I think that's rooted in, actually, that's funny because the, the other, uh, one of my other readers had the same reaction. So can you do this? <laughs> um, um, but I think that's rooted in, you know, back to Morris and discontent. I mean, I don't think it's an accident that the 19th century is the is is the where fantasy literature begins because the 19th century is when modernity the forces of cartesian reductionism and mass production and and you know um what marx called the alienation of labor and all of these things that's when that becomes a real reality and and so i, I think it's not an accident that this it's is, right it's, after the romantics right because yes. during shelley and keats could imagine magic and electricity right. and various what they could see through a microscope as all being consistent, all Absolutely. possible. And they and would by have the called time, it. By the time Morris is writing, you, right? The the magic is no longer possible. They understand enough to see that that piece of it. Yeah. Is, is well, no and and they and they would have called it natural philosophy, right? I mean, yes. science yes. to them, to the Romantics, to the 18th century folks, was natural philosophy. Right. And by the time of Morris, that language I think has died out, and that's mm -hmm. that's. Uh, so I think these are connected. I mean, I think yeah, I think absolutely. why the point is that it is it is a rebellion against modernity. It is it is a is a profound dissatisfaction with the world we have created. Um, that is simultaneously given us power and been so destructive uh, you know and so um i, I think that's um you know and at some level perhaps uh fantasy and and religion are linked and and they're not the same thing but um well some people i suppose would say they are but uh, you know it, it's it there's a dissatisfaction with the way things are here and now i mean it goes you know, goes back to Plato and the pre-Socratic philosophers, this, this discontent with the world as we have it and, and trying to imagine something else. I mean, clearly that's part of what's driving Morris. I mean, this is an enormous, you know, to write all these novels. Um, anyway, I'm probably repeating myself, but. Um, well, so, so, okay. So we, we've talked about magic. So what about gender and magic? Oh my so, gosh. so Walter, I mean, if you look at Walter next to the maid, it's kind of interesting because he's like this, I think he's made out to be kind of the perfect guy. He's a great guy. He's just great. He's he he can fight when he has to. He's brave. He steps right in. No problem there. But he also knows how to forbear. He can follow her directions when she tells him he has to. You know, so he's just perfectly balanced. But next to her, he's more or less powerless. I mean, especially in some of the situations they get into. That's right. Like yeah. with the bears. She I mean, saves him multiple times, doesn't she? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And she gets him out of the wood beyond the world to start with. And then she deals with the bear people. So, and he would not have gotten through that without her. He probably would have been burned and given to their lady God, which happens to be the, yes, um, of course. the lady and the would be on the world. So he's, he's pretty powerless. And she um, is both, strong because of her power and wise i mean she it's yeah. not just magic it's also a lot of brain work that goes on here 
she comes well, up with a yeah, strategy she, for yes. freeing them from the woods and she yes. comes up with a yes. strategy for dealing with the bear people but when they get free of the bears and they get to what is that place they go to where uh, the kingdom which the is, kingdom yes yeah where the way you get a new king is and they're out on the lookout for one of course at this particular moment when these guys <laughs> arrive they are out on the lookout for a new king the way you get one is you find the first man you see you strip him naked have a good look at him to make sure he looks okay, which Walter made Walter a little nervous, but I felt like he dealt with it all right. And then you make him pick his new clothes. And based on which clothes he picks is whether or not he gets to be king. And I, I see one of the one of the choices was military. And if he chose military garb, he's definitely gonna be king, mm. which is what Walter did. But the other choices were what? Uh, do you I remember the remember. other choices? I can't remember, yeah. I don't remember either. I think one of them was sort of, well, never mind. We don't know what they were. But so Walter gets to be king, and it's time for our maiden to be queen. And we yes. know what that means, yes. which is hilarious, by the way. It's a scene to read when she loses her virginity. It's very entertaining. But anyway, and all of a sudden, she's completely subservient. Yes. And she so, is instantly. Yeah. I mean, so this before is, she even loses her virginity, she takes on the role. Yeah. So this is like some weird adolescent fantasy, you know, at some <laughs> level. I mean, right. I mean, she out in the wild, right, in the wood beyond the world, huh. right. She is powerful and wise and strategic, and <clears throat> and then you know, back home, so to speak, you know, she's domesticated, and 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 <laughs> so you know, this is like this. I don't know. Is this, is this some sort of repressed fantasy of the wild woman? You know, um, I mean, Morris's own, I mean, not to get too um, uh, biographical, but maybe Morris's family life was somewhat unhappy. I mean, his, his wife was supposedly um, had a lifelong sort of love affair with uh, Rossetti, Gabriel oh, Rossetti, right. the poet. And, yes. and, and they all kind of coexisted. Um, you know, and, and it's it's hard to imagine, uh, you know, someone who, who had these ideas in his head, these fantastic ideas of these chivalric ideals, and you know, probably living up to that was probably quite a challenge uh, for his wife. I mean, I don't I, again, I don't know enough about it, but but if they were all if all sort of living together, then he'd accepted this, and this is very liberal, and this is very unmodern in the sense of the modern Victorian morals and all that. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, they weren't living in the same house, but I mean, I think he clearly, I mean, I think it's He's pretty aware. clear he, he knew about it. And, they were and, a circle. And ex yeah, they were a circle. And, yeah. and so, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it is fascinating. It is definitely a part of the story. I think the medievalism that, that bothers us, I mean, because um, it is bizarre. It, it is all kinds of double standards and, you know. Yeah. And I mean, I, I just, I wish he was here because I want to know why. Why does she have to lose her wisdom? Why does she have yeah. to lose her power? Yeah, I mean, you would think, if anything, you, you, you would want you would want her to retain it. I mean, to to govern well. govern wisely. Yeah. yeah, 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 very much so. Yeah, and and I think you know this introduces a topic that I suspect will come up in future episodes of this podcast, which is what the heck is happening with some of these gender roles in some of these very well-respected works. I mean, this one is a little known work, but we could talk about women in Tolkien and probably will. Um, <laughs> there's some 
uncomfortable and hard yeah. to understand sure seemingly inexplicable things that go on here well i mean that's what i'm sure led them you know when they did the um when they did the movie adaptations of the lord of the rings and the hobbit they added in all kinds of things uh for the female characters to make it more palatable to a contemporary audience which i get i mean i didn't particularly like the way they changed the story but i but i get it um, i don't think it worked no, it didn't work. It I mean, was, I like the movies, but I don't think the gender no. roles are okay. No. Well, time to wrap up. What uh, what do we conclude? Well, I think we can. One thing I conclude is that our, well, for those of us who are who are somewhat discontent with contemporary life, who who think something is a little out of whack, you know, this is not a new. And that's feeling. both of us. Right. This is not you a new feeling. I mean, you know, um, it's, at some point, you know, obviously, I mean, I, I mean, I, I teach a course in which we read Descartes and um, I think it's important to be clear, you know, when Descartes, uh, René Descartes, the French philosopher who, who is one of the important people who sort of created our modern worldview in the 17th century, when he was doing his work, you know, it's very understandable, the desire to reduce um, things down uh, to simple ways of thinking so that we could master the world. Um, you know, he, he was a sickly person and it was had lots of illnesses. He was looking for immortality. He was looking for health. He was, there's a famous line at the end of the Discourse on Method where he says, you know, our goal is to become the masters and possessors of nature. And, you know, when we hear that today, it's, it, it, it's kind of shocking because we now see the result of that all around us. But in the 17th century, when, you know, the, the life expectancy was 30 and, you know, most people who had children saw most of them die before reaching adulthood. And, you know, I mean, it's understandable the desire to become the masters and possessors of nature. But at some point, right, in the arc between that time and our time, at some point, there starts to be some discontent with that, with saying, well, wait a minute, um, we're paying a price for being the masters and possessors of nature. And, and I think Morris is fascinating because he's, you know, one of the earliest points, maybe it makes me think a little bit of Thoreau in this country, uh, also mm -hmm. being a, one of the first people to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, the, the road we're on while it is powerful and, and um, attractive and and good in many ways also has real issues. Okay, you know, I, I can accept all of that, but I have to say that when I look at this work and I want and, and, and want to say, so, so how, so did he do it? I mean, yeah, okay, he had a good, a motive that we can all accept um, right. in our camp here. We can all accept his motive, but I don't think it works. And I just, I just feel like I have to say that. And, and, and if it worked, you know, it's it's interesting to think about um, novels in the 19th century in this mm. period during which he was writing, because of course it is sort of the age of the novel. Novels just exploded um, during this period. You have Thackeray and Dickens and um, uh, Elizabeth Gaskell and George Eliot and all, and it's male and females writing. Mm. Um, this is this is this is not really satisfactory as a novel and hmm. i mean i'm not sure what to say about how big a problem this whole wisdom power woman thing is but 
But I would say if you looked at this story um, in the context of the, some of the novels written by women, um, you would find two things. One of which is that it's a big problem and that even the, even the female writers can't quite figure out what to do with the gender problem because they certainly want agency or they wouldn't be writing these big fact novels right. like Thackeray and Dickens and Hardy, for instance, are. But at the same time, resolving it is difficult even they're faced with the real world. I mean, yeah. you have to say Morris could have made it up better, but yes, yeah. but but they don't have the answer. I'll say that they don't have the answer. So he didn't have the answer. I guess I guess that's okay. Yeah. I guess, and it's not. I mean, I would also add that character development leaves a bit to be <laughs> desired here. And it's awfully simple, yes. um, yeah. and and well, hard hard to take seriously because of that too. I would say. Well, I'm I'm certainly no apologist for Morris, at least no. not. No, not the novels. I mean, I'm I'm more enamored of his larger project, I guess. But um, absolutely. But it, it, but I mean, the only thing I would say to all that is, I, I mean, absolutely. And I'm I wonder to what extent it's because he was again trying to create a medieval romance, mm -hmm. and so he he is bound by the form in his own mind. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, so um, there you go. So. A 19th challenge, challenge to modernity. Yeah, 19th century. Guess that's where we leave him, eh? Sounds good. Mm -hmm.